Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host. My youth's name is Michael Wojcik. My true name is known to no one except a select few. These are my co-hosts, as always. Marie Gajmarak. And I'm Corey. I'd like to note that we don't actually know Michael's name, so not the select few. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> We're on episode 34, we're talking about Ursula K. Le Guin's series of classic fantasy novels, The Books of Earthsea. Specifically, we're talking about the first three, A Wizard of Earthsea, The Tombs of Atuan, and The Farthest Shore. There are more books in this series that came out after a significant gap of time later, but these first three probably had the most influence and are the most important in the history of science fiction and fantasy. We've talked about Ursula K. Le Guin quite a bit on this podcast, but in previous episodes we focused on her science fiction novels. I think this is the first time we're talking about her fantasy books. Yeah, if yes. memory serves, the past ones we've done have been The Left Hand of Darkness, which is science fiction, and The Dispossessed, which is also science fiction. The word for world is forest. I think yep, that one, one as well. Did we do that one? I don't we remember. We sure did. Okay. We did it alongside another one, so yeah. things blend right. together for us over time. A Wizard of Earthsea came out in 1968. It is a middle-grade novel, a very <laughs> dense middle-grade novel. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they are aimed at what would be considered a young adult audience now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's mainly where their influence has been in fantasy going forward. You can definitely see some of the principles and themes explored in this series cropping up again and again after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Wait, you mean... Hang on a second. Sorry, I thought I had a comment. <laughs> yep, nope, nope. I was specifically talking about the magic system. but. <laughs> oh, that one. I was like, there's a lot of themes. Oh, yeah, and the idea of names is definitely something I've seen numerous times. That's She didn't come up with that. No, I know That's she, an old idea. <laughs> I, I know she didn't, but it's a common one. Yeah. It's an old idea, but its appearance in novels after this were of yeah. that specific type. <laughs> Yes. Very clearly we're coming from people reading these ones. Yeah. Actually, reading it, I was thinking, I'm glad we did the Conan cast first, because now I see where all this Conan influence is in Ursula K. Le Guin, <laughs> now that I'm reading Earthsea. <laughs> to some extent, lots of Tolkien influence, even though it's a very different novel set of novels from The Lord of the Rings, for sure. But... Mm-hmm. The concentration on language definitely has something to do with the linguistic focus of The Lord of the Rings. I read the first book when I was in high school, which is about when you're supposed to read them. That's the target audience for this. Which makes sense. Um, I read them for the first time about a month ago. We're nearly 30, so there you go. (laughs) I think mainly from my recommendation or just in general from... Um... The zeitgeist and influence of this series. Uh, There was a certain amount of, hey, we should do a podcast on this, but also 
I, I do love Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, no, so. I mean, you'd recommended them a long time ago. Like, I think back when we were discussing Left Hand of Darkness, I remember you recommending them. And it, it, there were kind of some of those books that I always meant to read, and this was just finally when I got around to them. <laughs> sort of, And I was kind of like, hey, there's fantasy, too, that she writes. Awesome. And it has dragons in it. Lots of dragons. Best dragons. Eh, not a lot of dragons. You don't need too many dragons, to be honest. This is true. Or maybe dragons are very central to the mm-hmm. novels, as opposed that to there be being a... lots of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's they're prevalent in terms of importance, if not presence. Mm-hmm. However, dragons are not the primary theme of these books. The primary nope. theme is how language shapes us and the world, and that is embedded in the magic system that is used throughout these novels. Probably the best thing known about them is the idea of the rule of names, if you know mm-hmm. the true name in which creation was spoken into existence of something, then you have power over it, can control it, and shape it. Mm-hmm. Um, much like one of the first parts of the Silmarillion action, now that I think about it. I think the very first book. Because everything's being named and sung in that. I'd also say geography is the other main main feature here. It's called Earthsea for really good reasons. <laughs> There's a lot of sea in this. <laughs> Yeah, it's... it's place on an archipelago. Yeah. Many archipelagos, I should say. Well, it's... Yeah. Depending on how you choose to divide it, it's either one giant archipelago or a ton of tiny ones clustered closely together, which, I mean, it amounts to the same thing. Yes. So, the use of language here, I know this magic system has been criticized before in terms of how easy it seems to be able to use, but is acting as a metaphor mm-hmm. for how... As I said before, how language shapes us, how we can shape the words that we use. And there's a very close concern with language and the use of language and the use of stories throughout these books. I never got the sense that it was just knowing the names of things that allowed you to have power. I feel like there was a whole lot of other stuff that you didn't bother telling us because it's kind of secret magic-y stuff. And it would be really boring to read that. The language part's the interesting part, so we get told about it. A kind of part of it that's touched on is it's not like anybody can do this. It's There's an inborn ability to work magic. And if you don't have that, you can do a bit of stuff, for lack of a better term, with or by knowing like the secret language. But unless you've got that inborn ability, you can only go so far with it and you only have so much potential. Yeah, they're not saying it right, <laughs> basically. It's all about the process of making, which is an Aristotelian term for poetics. Mm-hmm. They all work the same here. You have mm-hmm. words as your tools. It's how you put them together and how you use them that determines mm-hmm. how they shape the world. Mm-hmm. This all comes through very clearly in all three of these books, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, they all pick up on it in different ways, whether it's the consequence of misusing it, or how to use it properly, or you know, just why you need to be careful with it. Where your heart actually is when you're saying things, mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe jealousy and, you know, adolescent... Rage isn't the best way forced to be to be or state to be in to be uh, doing things. No, but it's I mean it's a good point there though in that the idea of 
language shaping the world, but mood shaping language, right? It's how we feel shapes how we express ourselves. And this carries and, over into the idea of finding your own true name, mm-hmm. because we have some characters in this series who don't, for mm-hmm. a very long time, know who they truly are, mm-hmm. and are therefore easily manipulated into fitting other archetypes. The other point of attraction beyond this central metaphor of the rule of names is, as we mentioned a little while back, the world. Yes. Let's see itself, this conglomeration of islands. Mm-hmm. And the preoccupation in the actual maps and so descriptions of the world with the words and sounds that make up <laughs> this place, the texture of it. Mm-hmm. It's very bumpy and wet. Has very fun sounding names like the Isles yes. of Ifish. Yes. And Gaunt. Hadler. I thought Gaunt was a good, earthy, solid name. I'm like. Yeah, that's where very practical people are from. Gaunt. <laughs> and we should, we should clarify, G-O-N-T, not G-A-U-N-T. Yeah, that'd be different. Broke, also sort of practical, but not quite as earthy. <laughs> as we've mentioned in earlier podcasts, Ursula K. Le Guin's parents are anthropologists, or at least one of them. Hmm. And you can see that in the construction of this world of Earthsea with the various societies that have sprung up across the islands. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not on islands, sometimes on giant rafts. Sometimes. Again. Which I still don't buy. <laughs> which is funny because there are actually cultures that are analogous to that in real world in the real world. Constantly on a raft? Pretty much, yeah. For all time? I just don't buy it. There's storms out there, and not quite to the same extent it's portrayed. But there are there are entire cultures of essentially seafaring peoples on the planet who literally don't have citizenship in any country because they're born and live most of their lives on boats. Boats, not rafts. I don't buy the rafts. All right. And I also don't buy how isolated they are from everyone else. Where did they get new gene pool? <laughs> don't buy it. And it's great. It's a great part of the story. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't work. So the world is shared between humans and the other sentient race, which is the dragons, of course. Shared is kind of used loosely here. Mm. I think it's more likely that humans sort of showed up and they're just damn good at reproducing. Yeah, humans are just kind of everywhere where the dragons just kind of do their own thing and don't really seem to care unless it affects them. Yeah, they're sort of shunted off in the corners and... That's okay, as far as they're concerned. Well, it's more they want to be left alone and don't want to constantly be dealing with these pet, pesky humans. As far as we can tell, their their entire purposes and thoughts are largely unknown to everybody. Now, one of the big parts about the ethnicities that are present on the archipelago is that the skin color of the characters was often not reflected on the covers of these books from the 1960s onwards because it was a very different dynamic from mm-hmm. what people were used to in Western fantasy in the time, and it seemed that artists and publishers and even readers just bowled on ahead and didn't notice any of the descriptions in the book of what people look like. It's not like she's heavy-handed with it, but she does distinctly say that basically only the people from... Um, only the Kargish are white, basically. Well, that's a common theme in Le Guin's work. Like, one of her big points is the majority of the world's population is not actually white. 
So why should that be the case in any other world? I mean, she shows it in her science, or sorry, she shows it in her fantasy, where in the case of Earthsea, there's only a small portion of the population that's white. And they're basically picks, as far yeah. as I can tell. Of that, there's only <laughs> one character that ever really is important. And Italians. <laughs> um, but, like, even in her science fiction, there's a lot of characters who are of other ethnicities, which mm-hmm. I think you could argue, and probably rightly so, is a more realistic portrayal. Like, Well, especially just... for this world, most of the people, from my understanding, look Polynesian, which, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, makes sense. <laughs> yep. Also, they're kind of lots of people spending a lot of time outside as well. So, there you go. Uh, the only white people are the desert dwellers mm-hmm. who are not usually depicted as having white skin in other fantasy novels. No. I'm not really sure why they are white. They just are. It doesn't really matter. Because for most of the, of the denizens of Earthsea, no one really cares. Ever. About yeah, it. Yeah, that's... Um... It never comes up in conversation. Well, it, it's something I think this setting could have loaned itself to quite easily, but Le Guin obviously chose to focus on other aspects of it. Um, but there's not really racism in this world. Or, sorry, that's, there's a big caveat there. Racism isn't really a theme explored in these books, at least not to any great extent. I mean, I, I think this setting, it certainly could have loaned itself to that, but like I said, Le Guin chose to focus elsewhere. And we need to consider that a lot of fantasy at this time had very much this preoccupation with bloodlines and mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, being fantasy... the pure elven stock and that sort yep. of thing. Yeah, I mean, fantasy yep. as it's understood in kind of North America, at least, draws heavily on Celtic tradition. Well, Celtic and Norse traditions. I mean, so when you're... Your main sources of inspiration are things like Irish myth, Norse myth, King Arthur stories. Yes, you're drawing on the stories of historically white people, and again, being written in modern day, often by white authors, it's going to reflect that, sure. Um, That's not necessarily a bad thing, like if people are drawing on their own culture, but what's nice about the Earthsea books is that it does acknowledge the world is not just that. It's nice that uh, that part of Conan didn't come through. Ah, that's what I was going to talk about, yeah. <laughs> in, in Earthsea. We just came uh, off of a podcast where we talked about a series of fantasy stories that are very occupied with race. Mm-hmm. The white characters in this are the ones who are actually the raiders and the barbarians. Yeah, that was more just kind of, kind of a... It sort of suited that, again, that they, that they were sort of off in their own section more and were a little different that way. But I don't know if it was necessarily a intentional comment. Could have been. But I think it was more just convenient and yeah, good the, storytelling. The Kargs are not evil, as well. No, they They do they're... worship dubiously... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dubiously moral creatures, but they themselves are not evil. And at least in books beyond this trilogy, you find out that in some cases the Kargs are right about things that the rest of the world has been perpetrating that is a great wrong, which namely has mm-hmm. to do with how people die and pass on. In mm. Which mm. is, again, something that's always nice about reading Le Guin is that she takes a very complex view of the world because it's a complex place. 
Like, you don't get the oversimplification of good and evil that pops up in so many fantasy stories. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> yeah, so, so far we've been talking at a pretty high level about these. Uh, mm-hmm. As for the actual plot of the Earthsea books, it's not because the plots don't matter. They're mm-hmm. all quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Main character is Sparrowhawk, which is his use name. But we will know him as Ged, which is his true name. Mm-hmm. And the first book is about his education into becoming one of the most powerful wizards that Earthsea has ever seen, thus the title. Mm-hmm. The second book is about a completely different character named Tenar, but she doesn't know that yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is Arha the Eaten One yeah, on the Isle of Atwan, which is one of the Kargish lands who serves the nameless ones one of which we saw in a wizard of earthsea when ged a- accidentally well inadvertently mm-hmm. released one that he had to deal with yeah well, he chose to do so but he got it wasn't so much an accident as it was him getting in over his head yeah yes so the Angsty tombs- teenagers <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah. the tombs of atwan is about tenar's self-actualization Basically learning who she is and being able to escape this mm-hmm. repressive system. And, and Ged shows up about halfway through it, but he's more a supporting character because it's more her story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the last of the original three is The Farthest Shore. Many mm-hmm. years have passed. Magic is starting to drain out of Earthsea. Ged is joined by a prince named Aaron. Mm-hmm. As they try and figure out why this is happening, how they can stop it, and it also mm-hmm. marks the end of Ged's career as a wizard. I well, I was going to say, that's one interesting thing about the way the trilogy is structured, is the first book is the beginning of Ged's career as a young man. Um, the middle book is kind of the middle of Ged's career. I wouldn't say he's middle-aged, maybe kind of mid to late 30s at most. And the last book, he's kind of an older man at the end of his career. It's his final great act. Then in the, in, uh, in the Tunes of Atuan, he's more sort of like this is the height of his adventuring version of himself. And in the last one, he basically kind of pulls a big Merlin. Yeah, well, kind no, of a thing. he starts the last book as the arch, Archmage, so he's the most, in theory, the most powerful wizard in the world, and it's his job to run the school of magic and have loads of wisdom and stuff. It's interesting yeah. which parts of this person's life are chosen. Mm-hmm. throughout these books because you could have very easily from that first book done mm-hmm. a harry potter and mm-hmm. just gone look at how look at all these great adventures and kept on spinning out novel after novel after novel about yeah uh, but ursula k Le Guin's about quality over quantity <laughs> what's, what's funny is all of these other what's interesting about these and this is very telling of Le Guin's writing um there's all these other crazy adventures he's been on that are referenced Like, especially getting into the second and third book, it talks about, it's like, oh, and he's the man who did this, and he's the adventurer who did that, and he saw this and went there and talked to these people, and it's like, all this crazy stuff, but those aren't the stories she chooses to tell, because in some ways, those aren't the interesting stories. Mm -hmm. Those are the high fantasy adventure stories full of drama and special effects, where they're detail-heavy, but actually quite light in plot and development and emotion. Whereas Gwyn chooses to go the opposite direction. Like, these are very in-depth character studies where the interesting parts are what make the characters tick rather than what crazy special effects will they encounter next. I think she even says 
in probably the farthest shore that the things that happen in that are never like recorded in song about or in the deed of Ged. Like the stuff that he does that people sing about in the world of Earthsea are not really the things accounted for in these books at all because those things are not nearly as interesting. (laughs) That's just a bunch of legends and crap. Uh, it also is very interesting how all three of these books are stylistically and structurally different from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wizard of Earthsea is very zoomed out. Yeah, a, a I, very I much said a told to... story where lots of stuff is happening, but I said not to Corey dwelt on very much at any from point. the beginning that a Wizard of Earthsea is the voice that old men use when they're telling stories around the campfire the whole way through. It's actually a little tiring to read. Whereas the Tombs of Atwad is the complete opposite from that. It's a very narrowly focused personal story Mm -hmm. that takes place in a very limited geography. A Wizard of Earthsea, you visit every island. Pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. the first and the third, they're these big world-spanning adventures. It's the second, it's like you said, it's all in one place. And it's such a boring place. And the boring is so palpable. It's a really well-written thing. How it's just this little petty politics that is unfortunately quite deadly and interesting. And the religious politics, no less. And she lives in this lightless cavern. Yeah. (laughs) And, well, she doesn't spend all of her time in there, but she spends a lot of time in there. And just how small... Her life is and pointless and controlled until Ged shows up. <laughs> That's extremely intimate. And yeah. then we move to the third one with the first two. A Wizard of Earthsea, even being a world-spanning adventure, was still a personal story. Mm-hmm. I am escaping this nameless one that I inadvertently summoned, summoned. and is coming Whoops. after me and I need to reconcile with this creature before I can move on with my life. Mm-hmm. As we said, Tombs of Atuan is also a very personal story about one person's journey into self-actualization. The Farthest yes. Shore is very much that we need to save the world this time. Yeah. And it was it's not, it's good that instead of making it a Ged-focused story, we have Aaron as the version who reminds me somewhat of Terran from the Chronicles of Pride a little bit, and sort of sort of as a, as a late teenager kind of starting it, and then sort of young adult by the time he's done in this story. And I think he's a much better lens to connect through, because I don't think you could tell it from Ged's point of view from someone who is supposed to be like one of the wisest and best at magic and understanding. I think his, he's probably so non-human that you couldn't really have the story be from his viewpoint at that point he's reached the mentor figure stage of being a gandalf Mm -hmm. which you don't really want to read about the story of the lord of the rings as told by gandalf well part part of the i don't want to say problem but um one of the motifs is all three books are stories of self-discovery and by the time you get to the third one, it wouldn't make sense to have it from Ged's perspective, because at that point, he already knows who he is. Mm-hmm. So it's more interesting to have it from the perspective of his companion, who is a character who doesn't know who he is, contrasted mm-hmm. and often confused by this person who knows very much who they are. Yeah, at the, at the end, again, just sort of retires. He's like, yeah, I knew it. Done. <laughs> done with doing. Done with speaking. Back to Gaunt. Peace <laughs> <and> out. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> And it's very satisfying. 
Whereas Arryn will go on to be the King Arthur figure of the Archipelago. Yeah, it's yeah. it's very much um, a role switch because in a Wizard of Earthsea again, it's Ged's story. Ged is the hero, or Ged makes the mistake. Ged solves the problem, so he is the cause of his trouble and his own hero. Uh, the Tombs of Atuan again, he shows up to help guide the main character. He is doing the heroic things. By the time you get to the farthest shore, it's very much Merlin, Arthur, or Gandalf, mm-hmm. Frodo, like. Mm-hmm. Technically, Ged did cause that problem, too. If he hadn't been such a dick to that guy, to like, Bob. back in the day, yeah, yeah, he wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, yeah, that was a bit <laughs> odd how he just randomly halfway through the book references this guy he was a jerk to at one point, and then you find out that that's the big baddie, and it's like, that's a little out of nowhere, but okay. No, because he could totally tell at the moment when because he says, it's funny that I thought of his name. Oh, I thought of his name because he's the person we're facing right now. You could see that realization. That's a little bit subtle. True. But it's there. And then I think that's why at the end he says, that's why I'm done with doing. Because all the things you've done in the past, two of them are the issues he's caused. <laughs> and he's the fix. So out of these three, I've definitely read The Tombs of Atuan the most times. Because it's by far my favorite. I think trilogy. I agree. I think I like The Tombs of Atuan the best. The, the, the Far at the Shore is pretty close. I think thematically the Tombs of Atuan is the most interesting. Um, I think I enjoyed the farthest shore the most, though. Yeah. It's sort of funny, because it's unusual to find a trilogy where the first book is not the most interesting one. <laughs> but really, it isn't. It's well, just, like, it's good. I'm not saying it's not good. It's it's great, even, but... Well, it's also hard yeah. to find a trilogy without a dud, right? Like, yeah. these are all good books in their own right. And I think a large reason for that is they all do different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of time, the problem with the trilogy is the later books just try to rehash the first for no mm-hmm. real reason. Like, that story mm-hmm. was told. Why are you trying to tell it again? I get the sense that A Wizard of Mercy only exists because she wanted to tell the other stories. <laughs> she also wanted to include the beginning. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, that's just I, the sense, I guess. I, see, I, I didn't get that sense at all. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of got the sense of she wrote The Wizard of Earthsea and then it felt like there was just room to do more, so she did. Like, Maybe. That's yeah. kind of how I felt reading them. It sort of explains why they're sort of collected in weird ways. Like, we read Earthsea, the first four books, without reading the fourth one, because... Yeah. I, it was written quite a bit later, yeah. Yeah. yeah my, I, I have a compilation volume, which is kind of nice, because I only need to buy one book. <laughs> Great observation. Right. Yeah, great. Well done. Unrelated, but... So we've talked about how different these books are between them, but the writing in all of them is still pretty dense and measured, I would say. The first book is very dense. It's very short, but it does not... It takes quite a while to read, I thought. I honestly thought, if the other two are going to be this dense, this is going to be a hard go, actually. Yeah, they're not, um, <laughs> I didn't find they were hard reads, but they're not quick reads, despite, like you said, being quite short in length. Like, uh, each, I ripped through each one in like two days. <laughs> they're very dense writing. Each paragraph has a lot in it, um, both in terms of detail and words. But it's never sluggish. It's never purple. It's never excessive. It's just dense, which is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're so used to fantasy novels being very thick and mm-hmm. oftentimes repetitive. 
that mm-hmm. coming across something like the Earthsea books where every word is important and will not be repeated. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Like, for, <laughs> as dense as they are, they're minimalist. Words have meaning. Yeah, it's, again, it's appropriate. In a story about how words have meaning, Le Guin uses each word very precisely. Yeah, the main themes of the trilogy are embedded in the way the trilogy is written, down mm-hmm. to the sentence level, which is not something you often find. Yeah. And I mean, like... The, speaking of sort of density, like this is no book of the new sun. You can definitely sit down and enjoy yourself while you're reading this. <laughs> I enjoyed the book of the new sun. It was just a sl- But I, it also enjoys you is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you enjoy the book of the new sun the way you enjoy a long hike. Like you get into it, but there is a point at which you're just exhausted. Mm-hmm. These are more of a power walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Good no cardio. point where the books will exhaust you for se. <laughs> yeah. No, I did. I did find them to be quite compelling and page turning. About halfway through the first one, I was like, "Oh, this is actually very interesting now," because I thought it was being typical, and then it was more. Not quite so typical. Well, you mentioned how these are atypical fantasy in that... um, Sorry, so we talked about how these books are dense, but the words are not superfluous. Everything's there that needs to be. Um, So one of the ways they're very atypical fantasy is you get a lot of fantasy that... Not not all fantasy by any means, but you get a lot that is excessive for the sake of being excessive, and as a result, it becomes purple. Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan, Terry Goodkind, a bunch of other authors I'm not fond of. But like you said earlier, Michael, it's just stuff where it's repetitive. It's not actually making a point. And these very much do, and it's nice to read fantasy like that. Every detail of the world that we see is not just for the sake of world building. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the problem you get with a lot of fantasy and science fiction or you know horror or any kind of speculative fiction is it's so obsessed with world building. And it's like beating you over the head with, oh, look at this cool place I created that it almost ignores the story. It's like, yes, the setting, you need to be able to immerse yourself in the setting. But if you're immersing yourself in the setting to the point where you're ignoring the actual plot, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> That's not to say Earthsea is not a cool, awesome world. It's pretty cool, awesome world. It's an amazing world. I would love to visit, but... This is one of those cases where we only see what we need to see for that particular point of the story. Mm -hmm. I like how we barely ever see Capital City, because it's never actually relevant to the story. I think Havnor appears once, right? Yeah. It's like, yep, great city. That's about all that's said about it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, we're not getting the color of the carpet in every room the characters walk through, and we're not getting the exact ways their stomachs are reacting to each individual bite of food, and it's like all the other just cliche nonsense that unfortunately saturates fantasy. I think we said loads on this. Let's not be too superfluous ourselves. <laughs> So another one of the major themes that are present in the Earthsea trilogy is Taoism. And the idea of balance, Mm. specifically the balance, which is referred Mm. to fairly often. Yep, don't upset it. This ties back to when we were talking about evil. Mm -hmm. Evil is something humans do to each other Mm -hmm. and sets the world out of balance. There are creatures that 
do not adhere to our own morality, mm-hmm. namely the nameless ones. And dragons. And dragons. But the nameless mm-hmm. ones can these kind of old, not gods, mm-hmm. but spirits that inhabit this world. Mm-hmm. They're malevolent, but they are not on a human scale of morality. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not evil for the sake of being evil. It's more con- trying to control the world in their way. Yeah, we well, see that's... a glimpse of this in the first book, not just with the Gebeth, which is the nameless one that chases Ged, mm. but, but also when he stone. goes to that one <laughs> island where you just see, this seems like a pointless side story in a book that's so <laughs> dense and laser-focused on the narrative. <laughs> nope, highly important, actually. Yes. <laughs> The paving stone of doom, as I like to think of it. <laughs> but, because uh, it basically is how it's described, which I think is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that's nice about these, again, the cliche fantasy plot is you've got the evil figure. Um, whether they're a wizard, a king, a knight, warrior, whatever, you've got the evil figure that's doing evil things for its own sake, right? They're this evil person who likes to sit there cackling, twirling their mustache, and coming up with new and innovative ways to tie damsels to train tracks. These aren't that. Like you said, evil is not... Evil's not even necessarily an intention. Evil's a result. Mm -hmm. It's the result of being selfish, or of being angry, or being careless. Evil is what happens because you let yourself... Mm-hmm. be too obsessed or too focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes across the most strongly in The Farthest Shore, I think, mm-hmm. where what the main villain is doing in mm-hmm. any other story would be a good thing. The intention is good. Mm-hmm. I am trying it... to stop death. Yep. But by stopping death, you stop all of life as it typically is. You mm-hmm. didn't think of that, did you? Is basically the moral of that story. <laughs> when going with what I said a moment ago, the only reason the character does that is because at a prior meeting, Ged had insulted and belittled him and made him, basically made him ask that question in the first place. I mean, I did say, I did say that Ged caused that earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's not like the guy was, like, a ray of hope before Ged met him originally. Like, he was a guy who was already, in a way, power-hungry, seeking for reasons that we don't know and aren't told, because uh, human backstories are long and complicated, and you don't actually need to know all of them. So, well, like, a story. We're, we're given the impression that he's a bit of a con artist, sure, but we're not given the impression that he's, like, overtly your cliché evil, per se. No. And misguided, and at the end, he's even... he's He, he more engenders pathos. He is literally mm-hmm. pathetic at the end. So... Yeah. And again, that's one thing I very much liked about these books, and I think it's one of their strengths, is they've got a very good sense of a grayscale. It's not boring, black and white, good and evil that we've seen a million times. They actually look at the space in between. Mm-hmm. Or even acknowledge that there ever is a sliding scale that that is Mm -hmm. (laughs) operating on. I mean, we do encounter the nameless ones the most in the tombs of Atuan. And as far as we can tell, they don't typically care about No, they don't actually... (laughs) I was going to say, I never got the impression, like, even when Ged summons summons one in the first book, I never really got the impression that they were evil... 
I, I, I kind of got the impression more that they have a function to fulfill, and it's not a function that's supposed to be fulfilled in our world, but when you bring one through, well, it's going to do what it's It's more of like an outside thing. They're outside this realm of sort of mm-hmm. operation. But I thought it was funny in the Tunes of Hatch one, because, because humans found the Nameless One things going on there, they start doing things like sacrificing and appeasing, because that's a very human thing to do, but you really get the sense that all of that was totally pointless. Yeah, they didn't need the to do thing. it. The actual structure of that religious organization becomes self-perpetuating as nothing. It's completely divorced yeah. from worship of the Nameless Ones at this point in the history yeah. of Atuan, because the leader... The old woman who looks after that area, she just doesn't even believe in the taboos anymore. Mm-hmm. By the end of the novel, she goes down into the labyrinth and starts digging around looking for things so she can mm-hmm. mess with Tenar. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's this, there's this really nice description of like religious conflicts and and of um, how like new sects are born, like with the concept of the god king creating. D- d- making his own divinity mm-hmm. and making his himself a part of this, then overall, subs- oh, like overtaking it in the end politically, because these other things don't care, don't do anything for anyone, and it and every people live in a human realm. So in a human realm, politics actually matters well, way more than this cave where it, that nothing ever really seems to happen. It's a fairly <laughs> scathing critique of religion, or. A form if not a re- of it, I should say. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, if not religion specifically, then at least what religion can become. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very humanist novels in some regards, mm-hmm. but they're not they're not necessarily dismissive of religion, I would say, but I mean, they're certainly critical of how it can be abused. Like or the- just devolve into pointlessness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about, like, blind worship. Literally blind. <laughs> because she can't see this cave. And, of course, as soon as they're like, this cave is always dark, I'm like, there's going to be a light in this cave later. This is a Chekhov's cotton waiting to go off here <laughs> to see what's going on. No, look, it's not as you imagine, because you didn't know. Because of, because of ignorance. Yeah, we have a novel that takes place in a labyrinthine cave system that doesn't read like a D&D campaign at all, which is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I know! (laughs) Yeah. But to me, the actual commentary on religion in the tombs of Atuan is this very small, prescribed, intimate version of Terry Pratchett's Small Gods, which is kind of these ideas on a very large... (laughs) Yes. Scale. Yes. And you can go about it either way. I. This is a much shorter book than Small Gods, but... It is. <laughs> they both come at it. Not as funny. Not, not as, as funny. funny. Le- More engaging. Le Guin's not a humorist. <laughs> no. No. Because, um, I mean, that book's just laced with the tragedy of the pointlessness of all these people's lives and pettiness. That's... Mm-hmm. I think she did a fantastic... You can tell that in this case she... I would say that she is a female writer because she really captures what it's like to have a whole bunch of female pe- people all in one spot together all the time with nothing else happening. Plus a eunuch. Plus, well, there's three of them, I think. Yeah. I think it's yeah. also fair to say Le Guin doesn't seem to have any form of contempt for humanity. Like, re- mm. reading these, having read her other books, like she very much seems to like to believe in, to care about humanity. These books aren't 
judging humanity as a waste of time. They're kind of shaking their head in sadness at these foolish things we do, despite having more potential. Yeah. It's really satisfying at the end when the nameless ones or whatever take back their stones or whatever they do, and they're just like, stop bothering us. Seriously. <laughs> We've got our, our nameless one things that we will do and crush you without thinking about it because you don't actually come up in our worldview of anything. And who knows what they're doing? Nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. The the vision of, a, of an effectively kind of... Um, Stonehenge thing pulling itself down into the earth was sort of great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I think we've covered these first three books pretty well. As I said mm-hmm. at the opening of this podcast, there are more. Mm-hmm. They are kind of reactions to things that Le Guin had not considered when she was writing these three books. So mm-hmm. the first three take place in a very obviously patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Even the tombs of Atuan, which is mainly focused about women, is about women in their place within a patriarchal society. Because it's essentially mm-hmm. a nunnery. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Tehanu, which was subtitled The Last Book of Earthsea very prematurely, <laughs> yeah. looks at the other side of this. Um, the Other Wind, which is the actual last book of Earthsea is specifically mm-hmm. about the systems of afterlife that can mm-hmm. exist in this mm-hmm. world, which also aren't fully addressed in the first three. Mm-hmm. And there's another book called Tales of Earthsea, which is just short stories that were published over a very long span of time. So Yeah, because hey, you got this great setting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't remember the title, but in The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which is a short story collection, there's an Earthsea story in that. That one has the first story that takes place in the setting, mm-hmm. but it's clearly, as it points out in the introduction, like, some things aren't the same. This was very much mm-hmm. when it was the seed of the idea behind the mm-hmm. rule of names. It's still an interesting and actually pretty funny story from what I remember. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about the dragons a little bit, though. I mean, come yeah, on. We, I was saving that for the end, knowing that okay. Marie is a very draggy, dragon-oriented person. We've talked. We did a podcast before on dragons. And they be cool <laughs> because I probably insisted. This would probably be a good time to point out that Marie has a tattoo with a dragon on it. That was inevitable. Anyway, carry on, Michael. I'll remind us of dragons later if we need to. We're talking about dragons now. All right, yeah, we're coming we're to the end. end. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so my big problem was uh, as a little personal problem. story. Is that, yeah. Unfortunately, when I used to be at a student newspaper, I reviewed a really bad heavy metal album, <laughs> which was entitled "The Keep of Col- the Band is entitled "The Keep of Colesson. And I never knew what the reference was to until I read this, and it was near the end of this really good book, and I just. Every time it came up, I was like, stop thinking of the broody pictures of this heavy metal band. It's nothing to do with what I'm reading right now. So that, unfortunately, thanks, Keep a Classing. You ruined that for me, as well as my ears. But anyway, dragons are great. I love that the criteria, or criterion for being a dragon lord is being relatively certain that they'll talk to you and not eat you. <laughs> I really liked the dragons in this, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're kind of interesting in that they're not there much, 
but when they are there, they kind of steal the steal the moment, steal the scene. Like they're these giant, powerful, intelligent entities that are just off doing their own thing, really. Like potentially, maybe eating your sheep. Yeah, they might <laughs> eat your sheep on occasion, but like they're not. And again, so much of what's great about this book is how it's not cliche. And they're not what would have been a cliche dragon for this time. They're not your fire-breathing monster. They're not these horrible, demonic, evil things. They're just these very interesting Mm -hmm. and yet kind of aloof figures. Yeah. And then they sort of... They're not deus ex machina because they come in when it matters because the things that are happening matter so much to the entire world that it also is affecting the dragons. Mm -hmm. So they come in. Well, they show up, but they... Yeah. yeah. What's great, though, is they intervene, but they don't solve the problem. So they're far from a deus ex machina. Yeah. Like, they show up to try to solve it, and then they get smacked down by it just as hard. I think, um, what's that one's name? Are we talking about Warmumbar? Yes. I think he knew that he was very likely to die on this quest. I mm. suspected he knew that. I just like Orm Umbar because he doesn't care that everybody knows his true name. He's like, what are you yeah. going to do about it? I'm a dragon, He's like, yeah. yo. I'm, st- I'm <laughs> such a badass that you can have all this st- power over me and it still won't help you. Yeah. Yvoud is um, comparatively pissy about it. And Kalasin is just kind of like, knows way more than anyone else about anything in the <laughs> novels. And just kind of shows up the ending of a ride and is like, eh. I didn't do anything about that. Got my younger cousin to go in there. <laughs> <laughs> there is more dragon stuff in the other books that follow these. Uh, so that's something to look forward to, should you press Yeah, on. I'll end up reading them. <laughs> um, the descriptions are nice. They're like really visually appealing mm. things. They're very richly descriptive, and they're not not even just visually. Like they very much cater to other senses. Like because, excuse me, because so much of the story these stories are set in boats crossing the ocean. Like there's kind of a constant reminder that yeah, you do smell brine, you do hear shorebirds, you do have water smacking you in the face. I was talking about the descriptions of dragons specifically, yeah. but okay, also true. I'm just playing up with what Marie said. Yes, the dr- the descriptions of the dragons are quite impressive. Like you, you very much get a distinct image of them being both impressive and beautiful. Yeah, you 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 haven't lived until you've seen them flying in the West. Basically, is <laughs> is it's a great part of that. Yep, smart smart enough to be characters still beastly enough to be um, opaque. They're up on the level of smog at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like, nobody doubts that they're dangerous in this world. Like, yeah. everyone knows you don't mess with a dragon. What's nice about them is people know, okay, they can be dangerous, but it's not like that's all they are. Like, they're still very complex figures. I like how when Kalesin's giving them all a ride home at the end of the uh, further shore, because uh, that shortens that narrative. Um... <laughs> The um, people of the Ninety Isles are like, the dragon has broken, Pender has broken his promise! And this just, it's sort of hilarious. It's like, can't break its promise! Spoke, it speaks only in the true speech. Alright, we have now capped off our conversation of the Earthsea books with dragons, so that must clearly Absolutely. mean we've come to the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, did you want to do final thoughts? Or? You can do final thoughts. My final thoughts are these books are great. They're a lot better than the books they influenced in most cases. So <laughs> pick these ones up and skip all the other books with people commuting with their dragons and yeah, <laughs> learning the true names of things. Yeah. Nope. Highly enjoyable. Good Good times. I'll probably be rereading the Tombs of Atuan as a individual thing because it's relatively short and it's got a lot of uh good emotion parts in it Mm -hmm. yeah i'm a little different than you guys on these um i enjoyed them i I think they're very good books i think i have a lot of good things to say about them not my favorite Le Guin works though you always prefer sci-fi fantasy any of our favorite Le Guin works i think Oh, yeah, like, no, this doesn't even touch the left hand of darkness. Yeah, like, I love the left hand of darkness, the dispossessed, I think we're both much stronger. I've read other fantasy novels that I've just enjoyed more. Again, these are great, mm-hmm. um, and I, I do highly recommend reading them, but I just, I personally wouldn't rank them in kind of, like, my top. I think they're just a little funny because she's writing for a different audience than she normally that does. That might have been it, yeah. And intentionally so, apparently. So it's just... I don't know, it just doesn't feel like her so much. But would, they're still good. Would you pass these to a 12-year-old? No, mm-hmm. I'd say probably do 14. Okay. <laughs> See, I would give these to a 12-year-old, simply because I know what I was reading at 12, and this would have been a good thing to have someone hand it to me at that age. I think that's a, that's a tricky question to ask, because a lot, a lot of vast differences in the 12-year-olds of the world. That is true. It's kind of like, would you... <laughs> get somebody, oh, you're reading Brian Jacques. Maybe <laughs> you want to level not. up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess this just comes to mind because there are multiple stories of people who, the kids read Harry Potter, they went, I want to read something like this. The librarian would give them a Wizard of Earthsea because it's like, that has a magic school in it too. And then the kid ends up not liking it. <laughs> Well, Harry Potter's uh, for I'd say it's for a different demographic. Yeah, this think, is a way more traditional kind of story. I think Earthsea is the kind of thing where, using the Harry Potter example, the majority of kids in that situation are probably not going to like Earthsea, but I think the ones that do are going to like it far more than they would Harry Potter. If that makes any sense, like that's yeah. a fair point to end on. So. Well, I mean, those kids would probably benefit more from watching Little Witch Academia, because that would, is definitely Harry Potter. <laughs> a very good recommendation for Marie, and everybody should watch Little Witch Academia. <laughs> All right. So, you can find past episodes of this podcast on my blog, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm still sort of at yaptopex.wordpress.com. I think of great things to write there, and then I just don't. And I can be found at fromspeechfire.wordpress.com. I swear I will update one of these days. Yeah, you're worse than I am. <laughs> All right. Thank Good. you for listening. Bye, everybody. Sorry, you do that. Thank you for listening. I... If you like this podcast, recommend it. See y'all later for the next time we record. Hoot. And stop. And lies. Hang on, mosquito. Got it. (laughs) Okay, sorry.
Carry on. You're saying. <laughs> not knowing your true self and not knowing your true name leaves you open to manipulation. And this comes across especially... <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought I got it. Try that one more time. 